This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a returning guest, a national speaker and educator on social media who has been delivering presentations for school districts across Canada for well over a decade. We had quite the time in November 2019 on episode 55, an episode that still holds up. I said I would have him back, and I can't think of a more fitting time than now. He is the man behind mediated reality. He is Jesse Miller. Jesse, how are you? I'm very good today, Mo, considering everything that's going on in the world. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, about the same. You know, uh, everyone's stressed and everyone's taking on stress, but in the large scheme of things, I'm healthy, I'm financially stable. For now, everything is good, so I can't complain. Well, I think it's uh, important to look at the bright side of uh, of the current situation, and uh, hopefully when this broadcast, we're all in a better spot. I hope so, and hey, thanks for coming back on. It's really funny because the last time we got into it about how an online experience could substitute for an in-person experience, and here we are effectively talking to each other online. I can't see you. And maybe I'll feel differently by the end of the episode, but, you know, it's just not the same for me. Yeah, I think, I mean, I love being across from you, seeing the banter, especially in our first meeting. Um, and that's why I think we both feel somewhat comfortable doing this remotely. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's nice to already have a relationship with somebody and be able to know what their facial expressions look like and how they would approach their own thought process as you're having a dialogue. Totally. Um, but what I think was really important is that we ended on this idea that these mediated forms of communication diminishes some form of face-to-face value of, of connecting with individuals. And honestly, I think there's part of this experience that's going to take that and say, it's kind of bullshit. It's all about how you use the tool and how you engage good dialogues and um, the social context that we sometimes put value into are having to naturally evolve here based on circumstance. It is interesting. And again, I'm not sold that there are, that it's a perfect substitute, but I'm living with it. And a lot of people have to live with it. And we're having, you know, social engagements over Google Hangouts and House Party and all these different apps. The one thing I noticed, though, is that when you get a group of people together in an in person setting, usually you can splinter off into little groups. There's like three or four different conversations happening at once. The groups are intermingling, but when you're on the house party app and there's eight of you, you're all talking at the same time. Yeah, and it's a competition for the loudest in the room, yet everybody's the loudest. (laughs) What what I think, actually, from a sociological point of view here is that um, it's proving that we're malleable. And whether Mm. it's grandparents who are, you know, a little bit more inclined to FaceTime now more often or um, parents who are living uh, uh, some of their own worst nightmares because their kids are... devouring screen time hours uh, throughout the day. Um, One thing in our, in our, in our human nature is that we are driven by our, our need to nurture connections. And if we're being told you can't hug a person, you can't shake a hand. um, The end result now is one where 
you need to have some idea of your cup being full based on connection. And if it's through FaceTime or a text message or a Zoom hangout or whatever it is, um, that's just the reality we're living. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into that, but I want to get something onto the show right away and, and something that's been bugging me, and I want you to explain it to me. I want to talk about this conspiracy theory about Chinese scientists visiting a lab in Winnipeg that handles dangerous pathogens. And apparently they stole the COVID virus, according to this conspiracy theory. So many people have sent me this story in some form, and I say, well, you know, I haven't really seen it reported in any reputable news sources, so I don't think it's real. And then they tell me that I'm just a sheep for the lamestream media. (laughs) So can you walk me through, first walk me through the actual conspiracy, and then can you debunk it for me? Yeah. So, okay. So there's a couple layers to this. There's a lot of history that goes into these labs and and these government facilities. First and foremost, Winnipeg uh, hosts our central uh, viral research center in Canada. And and that's where any time a person previous to this had uh, scares around SARS, Ebola, any kind of everything's doom and gloom viral contagion, uh, it would be tested locally uh, or collected locally and then te- sent to Winnipeg for testing. Hmm. Now, because it's a facility that works with international groups like the World Health Organization and any university that is looking to share information, would always have researchers who were going back and forth uh, from facilities in their home countries to this facility in Winnipeg. Now. Okay. The reason that Wuhan, China is so interesting as our center for COVID-19, but also part of this conspiracy is that Wuhan is the only place in China where they have a um, reciprocal lab comparable to the one that we have in Winnipeg in Canada. Mm. So if let's say the outbreak occurred in Canada as opposed to China, um, and it started in Winnipeg, we might see internationally a conspiracy theory in very similar fashion saying, well, it started in Winnipeg and you know that Winnipeg is this place where all this research occurs and that's where it gets a little bit of its legs. Right. Interestingly enough, um, there were Chinese researchers from China who came to Canada in 1996. And in 1996, they started doing research in this lab And one of the researchers uh, specifically sent samples of Ebola and SARS, uh, sorry, not SARS, uh, Ebola and um, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was not a a coronavirus. And they sent this to Wuhan for research. Now, in that, there was no coronavirus in the package of these two deadly pathogens. Um, Almost serendipitously, there was a perception that these two researchers were in some way, shape, or form rooted in this espionage of taking the pathogens out of Winnipeg, getting them to Wuhan, and now the vials have broken open, and this is why we have the outbreak. And there is, um, what I would say is actually a starting point of a conspiracy wrapped up in a nothing burger, if that's the best way of putting it together. Because Ebola made it from Winnipeg to Wuhan without breaking open. Um, And the reality of it is, is that as Wuhan became the epicenter for COVID-19 and the coronavirus conversation started, we started seeing these um, 
pickups of information about an RCMP investigation that had involved researchers at this lab. Uh, why were they going back and forth from China so often? And what were they sending? And so those little snippets of verified information turned into a big snowball of, of horrible content that was wrapped up in a, a foundation of truth that was then leveraged to make social media the main tool to make this viral sensation occur. So there was an RCMP investigation into who exactly? Well, that's the that's the interesting part. So the researcher who came to Canada in 1996, um, she was a researcher. She was removed from the infectious disease lab in in uh, Winnipeg. And there were concerns about how she did have access to certain things and, and was sending uh, content back to China. But as mentioned earlier, there was no coronavirus that was sent from this lab to China. It was and was she sending back those things in an authorized way or in a way that was sort of espionage? Well, it was authorized by the person overseeing her work at a university level. And there is a Canadian researcher who is in, involved in a university in China. He was using students to leverage the ability to move things in and out of that lab. Mm -hmm. And those things that were being moved were not associated to COVID-19 in any way, shape, or form. They were existing pathogens that people knew about but there was no paperwork to show why they had to go back and forth from each lab. And it's interesting enough to think about it in the terms of research, but if you're a researcher who's sharing information with other researchers, there are protocols that go into place. There is the knowledge that information has to have almost a checkbox of, did you inform the subjects in this study that their information was going to be going to another university or that it would be subject to another research study? And so once the RCMP started investigating as a whole, um, this then became a bit more public. And there was a CBC story that was written about this investigation. Now, here's where this coal conspiracy theory gets its legs. And sorry, which year was the CBC article written in? And which year was, was the investigation? The CBC article was written in 2019. The investigation was occurring from 2018 to 2019. Interesting. And and then in 2020, we saw Chinese media grab onto this Canadian story. And that's where it got a lot of traction internationally, because we know traditionally that uh, Chinese social media is, is very inclusive to the Chinese community. If you're not a person who speaks Cantonese or Mandarin, you're going to have a hard time navigating WeChat or Weibo and mm -hmm. so within that. Um, once it got onto TikTok, which again, we're going back to TikTok and its rise, um, it then started populating within mainstream groups and saying that there was this connection to this research facility in Canada. And that's where the conspiracy theory started getting a lot of grabs and people saying, well, look, this is uh, a pathogen. It looks like it went from this place in Canada. Oh, look, the researchers are of Chinese descent. And now you've got a little bit of internet uh, uh, fire and people started throwing the gasoline on it to make it go further and further, which is why you started to see people in your network asking questions or even saying things where you're shaking your head going, that doesn't make much sense. And so to be clear, there were pathogens going between these two labs, but nothing related to coronavirus. Nothing at all related to coronavirus. And it wasn't, it wasn't SARS-1, it wasn't SARS-CoV-2, which is what we're seeing now with COVID-19. Um, right. It was Ebola and another viral uh, pathogen that I can't even pronounce, and it's not my wheelhouse. I'm not going to try. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and the RCMP investigation, did it lead to any charges? 
Was any criminal wrongdoing found? Well, as far as I know, and this is where I don't want to add any fire to it, in, in my research of the story, the RCMP in Manitoba basically said there was no connection overall to any of the outbreaks in China, mm. but they were conducting an investigation to whether or not the pathogens that were removed uh, it were legitimately removed for the purposes of research. Mm. And so it was more a policy breach than it was anything criminal. But it was the idea that you have access to a government facility, you're, 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 you're entrusted with making sure that people are safe because it's a level four uh, facility. And was this pathogen sent legitimately? And in, in what way was it then received on the other end? Right. And I guess the interesting thing is I, I've seen a lot of right-wing outlets like Fox News and the Toronto Sun And even an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal suggests that the virus originated from this lab, and I should say the lab in Wuhan, even though Dr. Anthony Fauci in the U.S. completely dismissed this claim. How do these things become so popular and how do they even breach the mainstream when there are these experts, by all evidence, acting independently and saying, no, no, this isn't true? Well, that's that's the thing about the public square, right? Um, the public square as a whole, when we traditionally think about our, our bricks and mortar public spaces, um, you're allowed to have somebody in the middle of the public square screaming out things as long as it's not hurting anybody. And if you're a if you're a, a flat earther, if you believe that uh, the sky is green and that uh, the oceans are boiling hot, you could stand there and yell whatever you want because we have freedom of expression as long as it's not directed in, in a hateful way. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's propaganda, and propaganda campaigns uh, pl- have always played a role in, in how the public either becomes educated or confused uh, about what's happening, and whether it's, uh, it's a wartime propaganda campaign or whether it's uh, activism, uh, we will always have the masses uh, firming beliefs based on certain things that they see and hear throughout their day. And the more educated you are, the more critical you may be, uh, the more that you um, subscribe to one sourcing of information, you, you might live in a silo where you're not even open to any other viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And, and, and another part, which is really, I think, reflective of just our society as a whole, and it doesn't matter where we're from or what languages we speak, it's the idea that it might need a narrative that fits your agenda. And whether it's faith, whether it's your belief of family structure, or at the end of the day, just the way that you want to see the world, um, you will have individuals who, who say, oh, wait, these puzzle pieces fit together and they might not be perfect and I might not be able to see the whole picture, but I really think this works and I think there's something bigger on the other side of the equation. So this is the path I'm going to take and you can't argue me any other way. Yeah, and I guess I understand that and that makes sense. I guess it's the breach into mainstream media like an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that has me the most confused about how these things get propagated, right? Yeah, and and, and to that to that point, I mean traditional paper print media, you could write an opinion to the editor and 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 have it published and everybody at the journalism table will be laughing going, did you see what this wackadoo sent in? Yeah, we're going to publish it. Um, but when it comes down to it is that the, 
the idea of journalism as a whole, uh, there's an ethos to it. There's um, a, a structure, a, a liability structure that really has put us into a comfortable space where we trust the news that we read. Um, and I grew up, I grew up that way. If I saw it on the mm-hmm. six o'clock news, I believed it to be true. But the evolution of the internet allows anybody now to have a platform as as equitable to what we see in mainstream media. And and you can get subscribers, you can get advertisement, you can get engagement that goes further than anybody sitting with a CB radio yelling out into the void and hoping somebody is paying attention. So within that, if we look at the weaponization of social media to to get that malleability of individuals um, believing a, a line of rhetoric, that is where the biggest war for attention is when it comes down to conspiracy. Do these puzzle pieces match up? And so we saw that with uh, 9-11 truthers. We mm-hmm. saw that uh, with um, the evolution of social media as a whole and people believing that their phones and their televisions were all now paying attention to every single thing that they did. And within that as a whole, um, I'm glad that people are more critical because we do need the masses to be critical of the information that we see, but we shouldn't just throw away the value of the ethos of journalism. And so um, if a person just starts up a website and starts putting garbage out there because they believe it to be true, um, you're hoping that media literacy will challenge them. Yeah. Just a quick question before we get into the real meat of what I want to talk about. Do you think that the whole Jeffrey Epstein incident converted a lot of people into conspiracy theorists? Because I feel like that is one thing where a lot of people who were not conspiracy people were looking at it and, and were going, oh, no, he definitely didn't kill himself. Well, I, I mean, I'm inclined to think that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, but at the same time, at what, at what cost for his own safety? Um, when we see the things of saying, you know, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself, there was a you know, cloak and dagger uh, scenario, you know, he may have been sitting there deciding whether or not he had to kill himself because if he kept going, at what point does his life end? Right. Um, right? And so I think with all those, those conspiracy theories, whether it's going back to the JFK assassination or whether it's Epstein, there is, there, there is enough fodder to put those pieces together. I think, I think George Carlin said it best. I mean, he basically said, when you, when you see interests converging, you now have the ability to see connections because you know two people went to university together, or mm-hmm. yes, they worked in the same company together. But now with the internet, I mean, we can put together a lot more puzzle pieces that show you certain connections. And oh yes, this person, even though they're Republican, was invested in this company. And even though they don't get along in politics, this Democrat was equally as invested. So they have a vested interest to work together so their economic favor stays together. And you can take the smallest similarity in connection and now turn it into conspiracy where before maybe those disclosures were harder to come across or harder to, to get together. So when we look at Jeffrey Epstein and you know the emergence of pictures of people at his parties and whatnot, yes, Trump yeah. was there. Yes, the Clintons have photos with him. But isn't that just a peripheral networking as opposed to, oh, look, they're all in it in this you know, structure of, uh, of, uh, of elites? And uh, I think that that conversation, especially targeting the perception of elite, uh, does give a lot of fuel to conspiracy. Yeah, fair enough. Well, hopefully we'll revisit conspiracy theories a little later, but let's focus back on COVID-19 through the social media lens. I feel like during this crisis, everyone's screen time is up. We're working, we're socializing through our screens way more than ever, which also means that we're on social media a lot more. 
So I want to run a good, bad, and ugly on social media right now during the crisis. And I'll sort of pipe in as we go along. So let's start with the good. What are the good things that you're seeing come out of this crisis in social media? Well, now I got to populate my list. Uh, let, let's start with the first, the first part just of human re- value. Just remember that we still have, you know, the bad and the ugly, and, and more stuff to talk about. Yeah, I, I think the human value of of staying connected. I mean, um, the, the reality within it is every day that I look at social media, I'm seeing something that's making me scream aloud and go, "I cannot believe I'm having to read this right now." Um, but there's also this this part of human connection where you see people giving a lot more of their vulnerability to the internet. So they're saying things like, um, I, "I I don't feel comfortable going to the store today. Is there anybody who is?" Who might be willing to, you know, pick up a couple of things and drop it off? And you're seeing total mm-hmm. strangers in these in these Facebook groups who never really talk to each other, willing to do a little bit more for their neighbor. Um, but when it comes down to the core value of family, and I'll, I'll bring a little bit of my personal life here to it, as I, I'm safe with my family where I am, I'm, I'm not isolated. Uh, but the, I, I'm missing I'm missing my parents, right? And sure. the one thing the one thing I'd love to know is that I can you know see my folks and give hugs and be totally normal in that regard. But watching um, my, my parents have a FaceTime with my kids, talking to my sister's kids all at the same time and watching these, these children kind of bounce around and see my parents smile, it's no different than what we did prior to this when we have that geographic distance. But it is a little bit more reassuring knowing that we can still kind of connect and, and talk throughout the day. So example, uh, I had a 45-minute FaceTime conversation with my mom the other day. And it was awesome. We mm-hmm. both had a glass of wine. We were t- chatting like we're at the t- kitchen table. And we would have FaceTime before, but we've never sat for that long and just talked through that medium. Right. So, so there is those positives, I think, that people are going to really put a lot more value into how we use the tool. Um, but the other side, I think, which is really important, is that we're now discovering other people to connect with because we're kind of looking at the screen a bit more than we would in our normal every day. So I've actually branched out in certain ways of the way I engage on social media. I've explored a couple of of my own personal hobbies in that space to see if I can get any inspiration. And I've sometimes been critical of people who have spent way too much time trying to be an influencer or trying to get their uh, their pin board all nicely laid out so that they feel... They feel hey, like, you're an influencer, Jesse. What are you talking about? Come on. Yeah, but but I don't have any swipe up <laughs> promo codes or anything like that. So, <laughs> so, so when I see that and I'm engaging in that now, I'm going, okay, so there is, there is a value to that curation of, of, your, of your hobby. And so now that I actually have the time to take on a project and look for some information in that regard, it's, it's opened up my horizon a little bit, even though I knew it was there before. I just mm-hmm. now have the time to discover it. So there's a really good positive there, I think. So this is what I had down, and I think it, it basically overlaps with the way you're saying with one exception. So I wrote down that the, the way that we organize and help each other, especially with some of these Facebook groups, these COVID-19 Facebook groups that have been created, helping people find the resources they need helping connect people to other people that will help them. That's kind of cool. And and it's kind of a nice thing that we've seen in social media. I also thought that the way that we connect, whether that is the House Party app, Google Hangouts, games that we're playing with each other, FaceTiming with each other, that's certainly gone up for me. And I think that's also pretty cool that we can still do that. The the one thing you didn't mention, which which I had jotted down, is I've I've seen a 
proliferation of good, wholesome memes. And I think the memes have been really great during this time. You know what? Memes, uh, memes are a double-edged sword. I, like, I love memes. Uh, mm. a, a, a perfectly crafted one that's relevant, <laughs> time-relevant. I love it. Um, I, I hate seeing a meme that I've seen a thousand times where somebody grabs it. And they're like, oh, look, I've just discovered this. And I'm like, welcome to the internet. Yeah. Um, but here's, here's the neat part about memes. And, and I think they can be as equally caustic in that regard. And the positive is there. But right before uh, British Columbia started to start to see a shutdown because of COVID, we saw a story evolve where a, a realtor had posted a meme that was basically stating, oh, the next time I go to open house, I'm going to have to be dressed in, a, in a, uh, a plastic bubble. And there was this, this concept of how people should be using memes to, to talk about the COVID experience. And the one thing that I think that's as beneficial um, as much as it can be negative, is that sometimes when we add humor to these situations, you start to see a, pe- a group of people saying, this isn't a laughing matter. This is, mm-hmm. you know, people are dying and this is something we should be concerned about. It, it's such a balancing act in how you deliver something that you think the, the rest of the community is going to be okay with. And so I've seen a lot of, of memes that are misogynistic, misandronistic. They're the ones that are like, um, you know, come take my wife if, you can, if you're allowed to leave the house and it's it's some on some level there is this you know it's adding levity because it's funny because it's there but it's also a lot of boomer humor that's evolving on Facebook <laughs> and and as you know for the person who's sixty five years old and there's some anxiety there maybe it's the perfect levity but for somebody else who's not really dialed into that part of the humor they're going if I see this one more time on my parents Facebook feed I'm going to lose it I'm going to FaceTime them and tell them to stop um, so it's a, a slippery slope of meme sharing. Fair enough. No, that's that's a good point. So let's get into the bad. And remember that there is an ugly category as well. So in terms of bad, what are you seeing on social media through this crisis? So this is a really simple media literacy bad. I am so frustrated with seeing people go to Facebook as their question resource. Now, there's... <laughs> Like whether whether it's the school group where, you know, the school has sent out all these emails and they're telling you everything. And then one person writes on the school Facebook page. Does anybody know when, when the kids are allowed to go to go back to, to school to pick up their jackets or whatever mm. it is they left after spring break? It's like if you didn't read the email from the principal, don't rely on the people who did to answer it in this group. Like it's just, it's, yeah. it's a. It's petty, maybe at the end of the day, saying, you know what, you're, you're not an email person, I get it. But this question's been asked and answered 15 times. We know you're not up against a clock here with, with the time management because you're sitting at home. Put mm-hmm. a little bit of effort into looking at the official communications that are coming out. And, and the thing is, is that when we see that in, in those groups too, where there's health information, there's people asking questions like, oh, are we allowed to do backyard burning? Are we allowed to uh, go to the market on, on this day because of this issue? The hard part is, is that there's really good information being given out on government channels, on, on mainstream media channels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that, from official sources saying, if you just spend 20 minutes here and you listen to this, you're going to know the answer. Yeah. But the hard part is that people are relying on social media as their main resource for information. And the bad is, is that if you've got a person answering it with their own rhetoric that isn't reflective of what health authority is telling you to do, you're potentially putting yourself into a dangerous situation and others. And so that's been my, my big gripe with the bad is that it's, 
it's not nice to say, but it's going to Facebook to see something and then ask a question is somewhat the laziest way of doing it. But mm-hmm. if it is a small community and it's something that you can rely on and you know that the people in there are giving good information and there's some moderation, um, that might be the, the best place as well. So mm-hmm. like I said, a little bit more towards my bad gripe, but on the flip side, there could be some positive if there's oversight. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I didn't think about the people that were just asking Facebook or Twitter and they would just post it out as opposed to looking for the resources themselves. But I think that's a very valid point of something that's uh, something where social media is being used in a bad way or not being used correctly. There's a couple things that I had, and, and maybe this will fit into your ugly category. Somewhat related misinformation or delayed information about COVID-19 and its protocols. One thing that really annoys me online and offline is anytime I hear someone say, oh, we can get together with groups under fifth like under 50 people and it's like no 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 that was that was a while ago <laughs> and it's changed and it's evolved since then and maybe it'll go back to that but in the current time in the, the time that we're recording which is late april that you know that rule is kind of obsolete yeah um i i agree with you in the idea of obsolete information circulating on social media because we see so many opportunities for people to grab something and think that it's new. And I think it goes back to that joke we had about the memes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you may not have seen it before, but I'm reposting it because I think it's uh, I think it's relevant for the new audience. Um, one of the things that really got me, and this is going back to traditional media, anytime any of the local news channels would play footage of individuals where they were talking about social distancing, I was yelling at TV saying, "Could you like, can you please just put up?" previously recorded footage when you're showing these mass groups of people on a beach or mass groups of people on a, in a park. Right. And there's a, there's a bit of a media responsibility there because if I look at the TV and I see something in the six o'clock news that's showing a broadcast and they're talking about groups of people, but they're using old B-roll footage to show the example of what shouldn't be done, yeah. put, in, put in something in the Chiron and just show us that this was recorded from 2019 in a different time. Yeah. And so the same thing with social media is that if you are a person posting something um, maybe you need to be the individual saying, hey, this is from four months ago, and we don't know if these rules have changed, but here's what they were saying then. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's an ugly as much as it's a media literacy piece. But interestingly enough is that when we look at how individuals are using social media, um, we're very pragmatic to find what fits our narrative. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is saying, oh, we have an April wedding coming up um, and we don't know if people are allowed to get together and what they're supposed to do, maybe finding information that works for your narrative is you, the escape plan. So it's like, well, if we get in trouble, then we'll just tell them that we found this information online and it won't look as big of a deal. But the thing is, is that you should be looking for the most up-to-date information. And if we're, as taxpayers putting lots and lots of money into good information being shared promptly and in the right timeline, why not look for it? Why not put the effort in? Because odds are the person who's not looking for it is going to complain that somebody didn't put the effort in the right way to walk it up their front step and broadcast it on their front door. Yeah. So, so I think, I think there's a, a piece there that really does need to evolve to how does, how does social media platform itself highlight something that might be a dated uh, a dated piece of information. The the other thing, and I have a couple more things in the bad category. Too much Trump online, 
too much news sometimes, just too much stuff about COVID. And again, it sort of flies in the face of what we're talking about in terms of getting correct information. And I don't blame media and I don't blame the journalists. I just think that we all individually have to be accountable for how much media we consume and the frequency in which we consume it. And I don't know if reading about COVID-19 all day is necessarily healthy. I'm obviously all for staying up to date, but just being consumed in it, uh, even if it's good information, it's too much, I think. Well, I, I got three things on that one, and it's it's awesome that you brought it up. Um, I've tried my best to take certain moments of the day to just totally forget that this is all occurring in certain ways, like watching a funny movie where I can just sit down, get a good laugh, and watch the movie. Mm -hmm. There's been these moments where I'm laughing, I'm I'm getting a giggle, and then it hits me like a ton of bricks. Yes, I'm laughing, but there is a reality out there that I'm trying my best to ignore. And it's almost more overwhelming because I took a little bit of time to pretend that something wasn't happening. And Mm. I don't know if that's the most healthy way of approaching it. And now, Mo, do you have cable? I do, yeah. Have you noticed that every commercial is telling you that they're there for us? Yes, there's a lot of those commercials, yeah. The com- I, I don't, you traditionally watch a lot of cable TV, but yeah. I'll watch the news. I'll, I'll see things that are happening. And every commercial right now is reassuring me of something. And I feel like I kind of want normal commercials back that just annoy <laughs> me because they're commercials. <laughs> But then I'll try and I'll try and get something like I'll, I I don't Spotify Premium. I'll just listen to Spotify, yeah. and now I've got the government commercials that are coming in. And great that they're doing it. They're trying to hit you on every platform possible. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it, to your point, I'm like, I get it. Just let me listen to some music here, and I don't want to hear the break in. And as wonderful she is, uh, Dr. Tam is wonderful. But mm-hmm. hearing her voice over my my, my stereo in, in intermittently between my my '80s playlist sure. is is kind of taking me down a path of, yeah, it's a little bit too much and I'm feeling overwhelmed despite the fact that it is really good information. The last thing I wrote in the bad category here is that dating is dead. As a single person, I have no desire to be on any of the apps or meet people because I can't meet them in real life for now. So that kind of sucks. Is there an uptick of people on the apps? Like, is there more than there would have been four months ago? I wouldn't actually know because I'm not, I have the apps on my phone or I have one app on my phone, I should say, and I'm not particularly engaged on it for that reason, because I'm not one to sort of go back and forth with someone for weeks before I meet them. It's kind of, you know, text for a few days and then then meet up and and see if, if it works. So I'm just not on it. I don't know. It would be interesting to find out if there is an uptick of people on the apps. I I wonder how many people actually in relationships have suddenly snuck into the apps. So I don't, I I have no idea, but I just know for me, and I've talked to other singles about this, the consensus seems to be just to let this year be a wash and just wait it out. Well, so here's, here's something that's interesting to me. I mean, like we're driven in our nature to have connections, but those connections have end results. And so mm-hmm. whether it's a, it's a marketing effort to connect with a consumer, whether it's uh, family connections, you, t- you, know, you hear about people flying in the United States on Thanksgiving and they say it's the busiest flying day of the year. And I think to myself, so why do it? You know, if, if it's insane and everybody's at the airport, why in the world 
you know, is it this one day out of all the other days in the year that you're going to effort to go and have a meal? Do it in April, like not 2019, not 2020, but do it. And and when you don't have to have that stress and you can get a turkey, enjoy it. But the thing is, is that in the dating world, you're connecting for a variety of reasons, but a lot of them are self-driven. And whether the end result is Mm. physical connection, sexual connection, having a relationship with somebody that's multifaceted, um, taking away the physical ability to sit down and have a drink with somebody, um, you know, I think to your point, takes away the other steps that happen after that drink. Cause you could meet somebody in a park, sit six feet away and have a conversation face to face and do an elbow bump and walk away. But are we then motivated by our own selfish wants of the next steps of, of saying, does, is it all about physical? Is it all about that emotional piece that leads you to those places? And maybe this is a healthy way of developing relationships where you are limited by that, you know, those rules that they introduce in movies where they say no sex until the 10th date. And, you know, you have to really connect with the person. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's just about that though. I haven't tried the first date over FaceTime or Skype yet, but I've had, I have one friend that has, and he was just saying it's so brutal. <laughs> and it's, it's not that the dates were bad or the people, it was a bad connection. He just said, you realize how much of an environment plays into meeting someone, right? Whether that's the activity of having a drink or people watching or whatever it is, the environment plays a big role. And when you're not familiar with someone and you've never met them, having a static representation of them, and and let's be honest, a screen is a static representation of someone, isn't the best to create enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) What What I think is neat is that you have to look at all the avenues, right? So if you're having a Zoom first date, and then the person's cat knocks over something in the background and you hear the crash and bang and they get up and they've gone from looking all great on the screen because they put on a good shirt to running halfway down the hallway in their sweatpants. Um, I think you're, you're, you're also getting a very intimate access to a space that maybe you'd be invited to after a couple of dates. Are you writing a rom-com in, in the COVID crisis? Is this what this is? Because this sounds like a premises of a rom-com, Jesse. I, I guarantee Hallmark's <laughs> going to have something in, in wintertime where it's like Christmas Zoom and you know it's going to have uh, Lacey Charbet or whatever her name is uh, who, who was on all the Hallmark, Hallmark movies, I guess. But um, yeah, I think I think there's got to be a play, a, a play that happens here where you will see healthy relationships develop out of isolation in certain ways. Um, mm. And I want, and I, and I, I want to believe they're going to be um, naturally organically occurring. Not like some of the stories we've seen. It's like, you know, that one with the guy waving at the girl from the roof and then he sends over the drone and it was, yeah, that was creepy. It was creepy because it <laughs> seems so orchestrated for likes and, and, uh, and going viral. But the neat part about it is there will be people who say, oh yeah, we met through COVID. And it's like, mm. we had to, we had to take steps that allowed us to develop a personality relationship more so than a physical uh, closeness relationship. And I, I think in some way that might be healthy. On the other side, it might uh, lead to some disappointment as well. Yeah. All right. The fun part. Let's go through the ugly of the crisis through a social media lens. What are you seeing that's ugly? Ah, politics. 
politics. <laughs> look, I, look, I, I, I'm a big believer that politics. I mean, you have you have politics as a whole that, as an as it exists, has to expand and contract with world events, mm-hmm. with um, with the value of how public is is perceiving the power they that that, that politicians have. Um, but the politics that right now are, are emerging where you see this weaponization of the vulnerability that we're experiencing, mm. uh, especially in Canada, like I, I, I'm not, I'm not a huge advocate for, for the prime minister, but I, I think the prime minister is steering an even keeled ship in, in this regard. He's allowing experts to speak. He's mm-hmm. delivering good information. And then you see aspects of, of, of politicians who are stepping forward and trying to get people who may be inclined to vote for them. Uh, we saw this with uh, Derek Sloan, who's positioning himself for uh, leadership of the Conservative Party mm-hmm. um, and, and using you know, racial tropes to, to, to leverage some power against a very accomplished doctor who's leading this federally. Um, and, and that's the point where I think, oh my goodness, there's, there's the feeling of Americanization of politics in Canada in these moments. Mm-hmm. But the other side being just how quickly good journalism is being forgotten about when it comes down to that radicalization on social media. There's been such an uptick of bots and, and misinformation that's being yeah. used not only just to drive wedges in the sand because you know that that, that wedge is going to be there six months from now, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, um, how good politics isn't able to come together. Like I, I traditionally hate rallies and, and seeing people all come together with a 20-minute with a speech where people have been sitting there for hours on end. Uh, it's not necessarily something I love, but knowing that you can't have any campaign rallies in the 2020 American election, I, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of fine not watching that rhetoric unfold. Yeah, I'm sure Joe Biden is too. Yeah, but I, I, and I, I, think, I think just based on his ability to deliver a speech, he's probably pretty content. Uh, but, but in that, what does that weaponization look like on social media? So will you start to see uh, more and more people becoming polarized because you're not going to see individuals putting themselves out there and then having healthy community dialogues and um, town hall events or where you see a politician really being held to task because there's some kind of gating that won't allow a person with a different opinion or even a question that the politician doesn't like to Mm -hmm. get into the Zoom meeting, right? So let's say hypothetically Trump decides to have a couple of Zoom town halls where all the questions and all the content are very much vetted and structured differently than maybe a panel of journalists who are allowing a, a dialogue to kind of have a debate. Um, that, that might be the scary uh, ugly that's going to evolve in this uh, beyond just the current politics that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So you got politics. Is there anything else on the ugly side? Yeah. So one really important one for the ugly. Um, I, I really... I've been a huge advocate for getting away from this quantity uh, of time for screens with kids. And so what parents have have done here with the reality that their kids are at a school is basically justify that because of a situation, what your child was doing on the internet before was bad and now it's okay. Mm. Um, What what I really hate, hate, and I hear it from kids all the time is just, is, is hypocritical rhetoric. It's the idea that, you know, my mom maligns this video game that I play, but she doesn't understand it. She tells me to go outside. She tells me I should be with my friends. But my friends are in that game. The people I spend time with are in that game. The people who make me feel good about myself are in that game. And it was garbage until the convenience of having me at home 
and pacified in front of the screen worked for the parents who were trying to work from home. Yeah. And so that ugly of where we really shamed screen time as a whole, especially with young people, the, you know, the millennial uh, Zoomers, Generation Z piece of like, oh, they're always mm. on their phones. Um, there's, this, there's this underbelly to that that shows that that skill set is needed in, in a variety of situations. And so for the people I've seen who have struggled to figure out how to have a Zoom conversation, for the people I've seen who have struggled to figure out how to even set up a, a remote work, workstation so they can be at home, if, they, if they're asking their kids for help, awesome. So much mm-hmm. power to those kids. What I hope is we don't see a pendulum swing back where now that kids go back to school and people are kind of back into a routine come around and say, well, I'd like you to put the phone down now because it's not COVID-19 quarantine time anymore. Mm-hmm. It's now focusing on your studies. What, what's a kid doing now if they're trying to focus on their studies? And it's not online learning. It's learning through the internet. Yeah. Yeah, interesting points. These are things that I didn't really think about. What did you have on your ugly list? Again, this is obviously I'm talking about what I'm seeing online, but it's also related to what's just happening in, in society. And that's just a ton of anxiety. And I guess maybe it's not ugly in the sense that if people are able to express themselves, that's great and they're finding community. But I wonder how much of a role that plays on your own mental health if you go into environments where everyone is stressed out and and worried. And again, yeah, I guess there's two sides to that, right? Where you can find community and you can comfort people and you can be comforted. Again, I'm, I just don't like it in the sense that I don't like seeing people stressed out, and that sucks. Yeah, I, I think there's an anxiety level that goes to having the, the communication tool as well. Like, if I sent you a text before all of this, and you got back to me six hours later, I would assume that everything that you were doing in that time frame was more important than my text. And what I've seen is this uptick of people who I wouldn't normally really communicate with on the regular uh, sending me a message and then an hour later, hey, did you get this? And it's like, yeah, but I am home and I'm not really working as you know as as I traditionally do. Yeah. But your message is not a huge priority for me in this in this regard. And I'm happy to reply to you, but I'll get to you when I can. And I think there's also this expectation now from people to quench anxieties because we know people are supposed to be home. Because you're supposed to just be sitting at home. Yeah. And in that, I think the flip side of being healthy at home is that you're not just sitting. You're you're keeping your mind going in different mm-hmm. ways. You're you're staying engaged with people who need it. If you're a parent at home, you're making sure that your child's social emotional levels are finding good balance by thinking outside the box in your own regard. And and being able to minimize those anxieties means if you're the person taking care of other people, how are you using the tools you have at your disposal? to minimize your own anxiety and stress. And to your point of the tipping area where people, you know, their mental health starts to compile, we're going to start to see more and more instances where people are complaining about what the experience is like at home on social media. And it was a really interesting point and you triggered my brain on it. There was a woman who recently, the past couple of days, shared that she's an essential worker. She's going to work. Her husband is at home with the kids mm-hmm. and she gets home and the house is totally destroyed. And so she basically <laughs> used, she used social media, to basically shame her husband saying sure. he's useless. And in that there was a lot of people who came around and said, well, why did you marry him? That's not, that's not 
the purpose of what she's sharing. She's sharing that in this situation, I'm, I'm married to somebody who can't think outside the box, who is comfortable just sitting on the couch and watching Netflix. And I, I think those are the moments where when the tool is used, yeah, you might get 30,000 people saying, go ahead, you leave him. Where's she going to go? Yeah. Where's he going to go, right? So the more you propagate those situations, the more it might get bad for people inside that home. And that's where mm-hmm. I'm hoping people are being smart with the way they share the stories of what's going on in our intimate spaces, because there's no real escaping them right now. The second point that I have down is, uh, and I this is what my exact words, so much racism, bro. <laughs> there's so much racism. <laughs> there's so much racism. <laughs> Okay, so two things. I think all of the people I mentioned today, uh, the one I have disdain for is that current politician trying to leverage uh, yeah. you know, the race card and the fact of like people are asking, well, where did Dr. Tam get her education? Well, she's from Hong Kong. And if you don't remember, it was a British colony. And then uh, she found her way to Canada. And then she went to the UK for university. And then she came back to British Columbia to go and do more research. And then she was at another university in Canada. And it seems mm-hmm. that everything there. You're forgetting about all of the garbage that colonialization does to the world, but you, she's still got a pretty good passport to ride on. Yeah. And, and in that, there's a lot of racism and it's unfortunately directed right now, I think, in very uh, myopic viewpoints towards the Asian community because of the way that uh, Wuhan turned into co- coronavirus, coronavirus turn, turned into COVID. Um, but at the same time, when I watch some of the videos that are circulating about how the world is kind of um, policing social isolation, I've seen videos from India where police officers are caning people to get off of mopeds. I've seen videos out of, out of the Middle East where you have individuals basically being uh, removed from homes. I've seen videos from China where people are being welded into their apartments. Right. And, so, and so in that, when you look at the whole structure of it, Racism is fueled by ignorance, but if people are absorbing media that fuels their ignorance and, and now they sit there and they say things like, well, it came from bats and, you know, if you didn't eat dog, then this wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it just shows how limited you are in your understanding. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, everybody has a voice, but if you are not a researcher in that space, your voice doesn't count in this argument. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, the, uh, that's the unfortunate byproduct of this is that um, good education about science might help you understand a little bit more about how viruses don't care about race. They care about finding a host. Right. And this brings me to the last ugly point, and it's kind of bringing things full circle, and that is, of course, conspiracy theories. And we discussed one at the top of the uh, the chat, but another one that has sort of circulated, I don't know how cohesive it is or what the theory is effectively, But here in Vancouver, we've been seeing these groups that want to resist the lockdown, as they call it. They are marching on the streets. They don't care about social distancing protocols. They're bringing children involved. I believe it was reported that one of the organizers was a neo-Nazi in the past or maybe in the present. One of the organizers was the yoga studio guy who said that hot yoga could cure COVID. And apparently he's also... A flat earther. Yeah. So uh, so it's stuff like that. And, and, you know, I shared a tweet. I shared a video someone had posted online. It was uh, sort of an obscure account, but it was criticizing this group. And one of the videos, I saw one of them, and it made me sad because there was a, a child there. Like, this child was 
yelling these dumb slogans and saying, be a leader, don't be a follower, wake up sheeple or whatever. (laughs) And I just shared the sentiment that like, I was sad to see this and this sucks. And, you know, that, that tweet of mine kind of blew up and I guess people were sharing it. And then I was like, oh shit, did I just give this dumb group more attention uh, than they sh- than they deserve, but effectively that group is using social media to mobilize. It's using social media to get people to their rallies, and that's the stuff that I think is ugliest for me in terms of like. There's one thing to believe in something that's stupid, but then there's another thing when your belief of that stupid thing is now putting others at risk. Yeah, and and to your very valid point, um, you know, we we go back to what it means to have conspiracy as a whole and arguing about conspiracy. Um, Mm. Conspiracy itself is a war of attrition. If I win my argument with facts and source values, Mm -hmm. the person who believes in their rhetoric, um, they're not going to be convinced. They're going to, you know, and... And, and they're comfortable in their network of people because they find value there, right? So mm-hmm. social media is it's equitable in that regard as well. If, if I have an idea and I want to share it, I could go to the town square and stand on a soapbox and wait to get some people around me and maybe I'll get some tomatoes thrown at me and another side of it, somebody will go, actually, he kind of made sense because I've seen and felt that too. And that mm-hmm. goes again to propaganda. Any propaganda campaign plays a role in how the public becomes confused. But, you know, to your point of kids, um, anytime we see kids being weaponized for a political value, whether it's like, I, 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 I think I mentioned this last time to you, I've never been so passionate about something that I've got a, a piece of Bristol board and a marker and decided to make a sign. Like, that's <laughs> just not the way that I'm wired. And yeah. if, if I had to, and if I was motivated by my union and, and my cause, I could get out there and protest. I've supported protests before, but mm. I've never physically got out there and said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. I would really have to believe in something to, to drag my children to an event like that. Right. And, and in that, uh, maybe they couldn't get a babysitter because COVID restrictions are stopping you know, that, that business as well. But hearing a child scream out rhetoric that they've heard their parents say, no matter what it is, you want a child to develop their own ideas and you want a mm-hmm. child to be able to construct the value. And I think actually I I had a a colleague of mine who's a person of faith uh, say to me, he never pushed religion onto his kids because he would feel guilty if at the end of the day, they only believe something because if they didn't, they would disappoint their father. Right. So he gave them the tools to understand a variety of religions, a variety of viewpoints. And he said, you know, two of his kids aren't, you know, pullers of the, of the faith or in the family, but mm-hmm. one is, and he boomeranged back because he found value in it for himself. And so when we hear about these parents who put their children into dangerous situations, whether it's that, that couple from British Columbia, Alberta, who uh, chose not to give their children medications and the mm-hmm. child died and we had yeah. a court process. And even he came out and said, oh no, the, this COVID thing's garbage. I mean, don't listen to those people. Their children have died because of their choices. You yeah. probably should not be following that person's ideology. But back to you know your your viewpoint of social media within that, um, it's it's disheartening to see this tool used for bullying. It's disheartening to see it used to uh, leverage power in politics because it should be the great equalizer to get good information to people, no matter where you're from, no matter how much money you have. But um, 
when those interests as a whole converge on social media, yes, you can have people protesting. And I think there were some people who had dialogue saying, why are the police protecting these idiots? Um, oh, that was my question. Yeah. On Twitter, like I was just, I said, I was sad. And then my main question was if there are social distancing protocols, why are the police there effectively endorsing? I mean, not endorsing, but making it an official protest, right? Like a lawful assembly. Yeah, and and that goes to our our rights in 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 our our structure of having having you know rights and freedoms, right? Or do we have the right to come together? Is it current that you can have less than fifty people? What does it mean for all those people walking down a street to be at least six feet apart, except for their family unit that's allowed to be within a six feet bubble? Yeah. Um, for a police officer to say, "Hey, I'm just." going along here because I'm making sure that nobody takes their car and drives through them. Um, that's the, the the larger protection of human life and saying I'm going to protect from, from craziness. But um, when it comes down to civic value, does that, that, does that civic value supersede the value of, of, of our right to free expression, right? Just because you told me to stay home, it's not martial law. You haven't ordered me to do that. Mm-hmm. So could I, could I walk down uh, through you know, Stanley Park right now with a sign on my chest saying COVID-19 is a hoax. Uh, I have the right to do that as a, for- a form of freedom of expression. But if my my safety is jeopardized because the masses want to strike me down, should a police officer protect me or just let me get, uh, get, me, get me ripped apart? Mm-hmm. So there's that weird balance of at what point do we give up some of those freedoms and, and safety protocols that we believe in uh, for the overall safety of, hey, you're going to have to stay in your house, and if you try and leave, we're going to weld the door shut. Yeah, I guess my point was just that it would seem really unfair if there were a couple of teenagers, you know, sitting at the beach drinking beer, and uh, they were ticketed for social distancing while these other people were able to do a march with police protection through Beach Avenue or Fourth. I think they were on Fourth Street. You got to remember, this is Vancouver. You can't have that open beer on the beach. <laughs> okay, let's let's. Okay, chewing gum. They're chewing gum. Chewing gum. <laughs> uh, they're having a couple of pops, and um, you know, I don't know. I, I I just thought it was a question. I, I I actually had no stance on what the police should do or shouldn't do. I just thought it was strange that they were there when we have these protocols on. And from my understanding, there was. A difference in sort of jurisdiction. So it's bylaw officers that are issuing the tickets, and they technically haven't issued tickets, at least in Vancouver as of recording, yet for breaking social protocol. They are giving, they have been giving out warnings, telling people to break up their groups. But I just found it strange. And, th- and that was kind of my, my commentary. But I, I guess to a larger point, who is the person online who looks at that group? And is susceptible to believing them and perhaps even joining them. Is that someone who is not doing well in social isolation and and the new distancing protocols? Who is that person that's going to join and and march with that group? You know, that's such a wide question, but I think it has a really simple answer. It's the person who feels most connected to what makes sense. So if mm. they feel that staying at home and not making any money and losing their mortgage or not being able to support anything in regards to bills is not making sense mm-hmm. and going out with these people, if they get 10 more, if they get 50 more, if they get a hundred more people marching in line, that things might change. And I, I mean, there's a democracy piece to that as well, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, the masses are saying this is the way things are and that's just the way things are. Um, and, and in that, uh, when you have health authority and especially within the health act versus the criminal code, um, you know, if I walk onto your property after dark, I'm trespassing by night. But if I walk up to your front door in the middle of the day to try and sell you a vacuum cleaner, I'm soliciting. Sure. And so what are the nuances that make the, the, the situation different for each person? So if you think about a person in Alberta who six months ago was trying to scream at the top of their lungs for a pipeline going in, and then you have people in British Columbia who are standing ground and saying, well, that pipeline's not coming through here. Well, that's where you get people who say, well, my lifeline is being cut off and here's where I'm, which side of the coin I'm going to be on. And so in social media terms, when you have people who are more inclined to look for answers now because mm-hmm. you're home, yeah, okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's absolutely wonderful, not only mm-hmm. in her delivery of information, but in her expertise, if that person says, well, this woman is costing me my ability to go to work, well, the, the random person on the internet saying, well, this is all a hoax might be more appealing. Right. And, um, and that goes again, it goes to education, it goes to literacy, it goes to community. Because if you're walking out your front door and your spouse is saying, if you leave to go walk around with these people and, and you put yourself into a dangerous situation where you might become compromised, don't come home. Maybe it is the person who doesn't have another human being in their life telling them not to do it. And there are so many little variables going on there. Uh, but again, what would I would agree with 100% is when you see the children being dragged into it and they don't have a voice to say, no, I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I'm hoping that the oversight, like yeah, a ministry of children and families, is stepping in saying, no, this child should not be put into this situation despite you know orders from the health authority. And that's where um, maybe other family might be better off suited taking care of that kid. Mm-hmm. So I want to end on this note and I want to bring it back completely full circle because we opened up talking about how online experiences could substitute for in-person experiences. And we talked about this idea of you and I aren't sitting in the same room right now. So as we isolate as we social distance, we we do lose a lot of things. We lose that in-person work relationship. We lose our fitness clubs. We lose our physical hangouts with friends or with family. We lose a lot of places that we go to regularly, even just going to the mall. We lose large gatherings to see a show, uh, art, culture. There's so many things that are now lost in this way of living, which we need to do. I mean, I'm totally on board for it. But having lost all of that, can technology completely replicate those experiences? Because you know that I'm still skeptical that it can. <laughs> and I've given you a few examples, really, you know, dating and, and a few other things where I don't think it's it's a good fit. But I want to give you the final word in, in terms of that overall question, which I feel has been the, the main question that, that I continue to ask you whenever you're on the show. I, I like to believe, I don't know if you've ever watched the show, but have you ever watched Black Mirror? Of course. I, I'm having these feelings of Black Mirror episodes throughout the past four weeks. You know, I'll, <laughs> see, little, I'll see little moments where um, you, you, you know, to, the, to your point of the Hangouts uh, 
uh, you know, house party and you got eight people all talking at once. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does the technology that we consider ourselves to be very good at um, enable our reality to continue? And, and I think actually even, even the most versed user is going to have some burnout with this because mm-hmm. you work from home consistently and you're comfortable in that space working from home, but your kids are at school normally and you have a seven hour part of your day where it, it is a different reality than having the kids home and trying to juggle everything. I think there's part of an evolution here where technology is going to still be very much in line with what we're doing as we move forward. And there are certain things that will develop. Like you're going to take, a, if you do Peloton and you're at home on a bike and, and you're comfortable doing that, maybe that's just the way your schedule is set up. But now you're longing for a spin class with 20 people just so you can see another person sweat as equally as you are. Yeah. Um, so there are parts of it that go to that, that, that texture piece of our life where human contact can never be replaced by anything that's technology driven. And mm-hmm. whether it's the person who justifies it says, oh, we're going to have love robots or we're going to, you know, you don't have to go to a movie theater because they, you won't even have first releases where you stand in line anymore. It's going to come right to your house. I used to make the joke that for paying for a babysitter, going to a movie, VIP, big seats, drinks delivered to your, you know, your, your chair, um, you're spending 150 bucks to watch, you know, the, the, the next Marvel movie that comes out. Sure. Yeah, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. Why don't I just spend 75 bucks and I can watch it at home for the, for the very first day it's out. And if they could do that, I would be the first one lining up. I've seen movies now the past couple of weeks that have been released right to it going, eh, no, I don't care. I don't care enough to spend 15 bucks to watch that movie because uh, it's, not, it's not enough of a motivator for me. So within that, what were, the, what were the structures that we had that made people motivated to do something? Was it a first date where you would go out and watch a movie and you didn't have to talk to each other? Was it going to that new restaurant where everybody's been talking about it? Or is it the pendulum coming back saying, you know what, I've been on my computer all day long. I just want to sit in my backyard, not respond to people on my phone mm-hmm. and you know, enjoy my 25 by 25 square feet of space so I can have a gin and tonic and not think about anything that's going on in the world. And to your point earlier of maybe slowing down the cons- amount of media that we consume in this, I'm, I'm not becoming numb to the amount of deaths. I'm not becoming angry because it's a virus. You can't get angry at the virus. Mm-hmm. I'm really angry that Canada had its largest mass murder and it didn't have the same impact as what I experienced with Humboldt because it didn't slow down the reality of what we were going through. Right. Those are pieces there that I, I, I'm terrified that parts of humanity might become numb. But what does the other side look like when we come out of it and we go, we have to reshape our normal. We have to reshape the way that we do things and see value. I don't want to get stuck in any traffic next month or five months from now um, because I like the fact there's not a lot of traffic right now. I like the fact that I'm not seeing a plane every 20 minutes passing over top of my house. There are certain parts of this that show me that there's benefit to what we could slow down, especially for our greater good as climate change is a reality and the way we do things as human beings might not be very good for this planet. Mm -hmm. But as a whole, social media is going to play a pivotal role in how we choose to go forward. And if you're a person who's watching family members become somewhat manipulated to believe conspiracy or to believe that there's uh, a, a identity that you can place this to and say, oh, it's because of this person of Asian descent or these people, you know, you got to step in and take the opportunity to say, where are we as a family 
helping you understand what you're seeing. And mm-hmm. if it can't be family or a friend, um, we can't let these people go to pasture because there are people out there who will prey on that person out in pasture. And that's where real weaponization of the human mind takes place. All excellent points. I agree with you on almost everything except for one minor thing. You brought up the movie example. Made sense. I agree with it. But you can't compare that to a concert because I will pay 300 bucks to see Gaga if I'm on the floor but I will not pay a dollar to see the concert in my living room. I probably won't see a concert in my living room. I got to ask the question, Mo. Sure. You paid, you paid 300 bucks. Yeah. You're on the floor. The person in front of you who's just an inch shorter than you is holding yeah. their phone up the entire time. How are you feeling? <laughs> Good question. So ideally, it's a general admission floor thing where I can move about and, and move away from that person. I think if it was that constant, I would tell that person, hey, uh, you got to figure something else out. No, no, I, it's my phone. I'm allowed to. How dare you tell me to put my phone away? <laughs> I guess I'm just leaning on on to the side to watch the whole show. Sure. <laughs> now, and now you got that neck crick. You saw Lady Gaga. She's fantastic. Worth it. She's worth it. <laughs> I, I watched all of the uh, the concerts that came out, and uh, I saw Elton John playing piano in his driveway. Oh yeah. I thought to, my, I thought to myself, if I live down the block from Elton John, and I could just pop my head over his over his gate and take a take a listen, that would be the best opportunity. Of oh my yeah. Oh yeah. Concert. But yeah. watching him on TV trying to figure it out while a bird was flying around behind him, <laughs> it was totally different. And but it made him a little bit more human. Sure, and that's kind of cool. I I just meant, you know, certain, like, you can compare a live show to a movie, is what I'm saying. No, you cannot. Not at all. You're right. Can I leave you with, uh, I mentioned George Carlin earlier, but uh, can I wrap it up with a really good uh, quote from George Carlin about conspiracy? Please, hit me. He said, never argue with an idiot. They'll only bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. Well said. That's a lesson I should take to heart anytime I have the urge to argue with someone on Twitter. So I will keep that in mind. I think we're all learning about the possibilities of telecommunicating and and trying to create these online communities and navigating through this unprecedented times, as cliche as it is to say that now. So I really appreciate this conversation. Jesse, this was a treat. How do people find more about you and follow you online? Oh, they can find me at Mediated Reality on Twitter. Uh, I'm not much of an Instagram guy. It's only because I can't really take selfies. But uh, anybody can reach out. And if they have any questions about how how to help somebody in their life figure out tra- uh, truth from fiction and, uh, and all the things that are going on with the internet, feel free to reach out as I'm at my desk and emails make me happy these days. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. Thanks for coming back onto the show with your insights and your conspiracy theory debunking. We got to do it again. And you know what? In the interim, we might have to grab some beers over Zoom soon. Love it. (laughs) Thanks again. People, he is the man when it comes to explaining all things new media, social media, and how we interact with the world around us with technology. He is Jesse Miller of Mediated Reality. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.